each one of you all the, uh, the understanding of the gospel, to be able to have a, a, a more complete understanding of, of who you are first, who our Lord is in comparison to us, but also how you can go out and, and you don't have to be Billy Graham to be, to be able to do this, okay? You don't have to be someone who is a, a very famous speaker. You don't have to be somebody who, who understands all of the Scriptures and who can answer every Bible trivia question that ever might come along. Because I can promise you, I don't, I don't know of anybody that can. And, and yet, the simple song that we just sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I, I did a funeral a couple of weeks ago, and that was the mantra of this lady. Uh, that was her understanding. She was very much, um, she sold children's books uh, to, to schools and libraries and things like this. And um, <clears throat> that, that was the mantra by which she was known, that Jesus loves me, this I know. What a, what a, a sweet, childlike um, understanding of the scriptures. And yet Jesus tells us that we're to come to him as little children. So, you know, there you go right there. So I'm really hoping, I'm really, really excited about the series that we're about to start. And uh, it's going to be the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at Matthew 5 through 7. We have some other things that we have in the plans uh, for the days ahead. So um, please try to be here every week or at least watch if you can. Uh, we want you to be equipped as you go out into the world, to be, to be spiritually stronger each and every time that you're here. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning as well. Uh, before we get started, though, uh, let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We bless your name. We, we thank you for all that you've done for us. And we look back in the year 2020. And though it was a very, very hard year, you've kept us safe. Here we are today to be able to honor and praise your name. Uh, so many times uh, when I visit with people I, and, and they're, they're ill, we just like to say that at the end of the day, may they be able to witness to others that you have been with them every step of their way. May we do the same. We ask your guidance. We ask your blessings today that uh, truly <clears throat> we can say that you're with us and you continue to be with us in the darkest of days and in the lightest of lights. Help us, if you would, now to understand as we go into the Beatitudes, the Blessed Are Statements, Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave us early in his ministry. And would you help us to be able to more fully understand these words we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? This is a short passage, but we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3. Stand with me, if you will, while the Word of God is read. Here's where Matthew writes to us. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Grass withers, the flowers fade away. But the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen. 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 Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> for, the next several, <clears throat> for the next several weeks and months, we're, we're going to look through a very important segment of Jesus' discourse in Matthew. We know it as a Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, we're going to be looking particularly these first few verses in chapter 5. It's a, a group of thoughts. It's a group of, of uh, understandings, let's say. And I have a theory about this myself. Uh, but they're called the Beatitudes, the Blessed Are Statements. I, I think oftentimes that this might be the equivalent of the Ten Commandments for, for us in, in the New Testament. Uh, because many of the statements that are made in here in a positive way, okay, we're not looking at thou shalt not, okay? We're looking at the blessed are. You know, we're looking at this as, as go forward with a, with a positive attitude about things. Don't be looking over your shoulder at, at things to keep from having happened or, or keep from doing, okay? So uh, to that end, and, and right, wrong, or indifferent, that, that's kind of my feeling on these verses. But if you'll also look at the sixth chapter of Luke, verses 20 through 49, you're going to see kind of a parallel, a, a, a compliment, if you will, to what we find in Matthew 5. Um, this will help give a better understanding overall of what Jesus is trying to say here, okay? Uh, as, as we said before, the Gospels tell the story, a lot of the stories in many of the same, in many of the same ways. And yet, if you look at more than one of the Gospels, either two, three, or four of the Gospels, you're going to find that on this on one particular thought that you may have seen in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you go back and look, and there is a completion of the thought. There's a, 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 an allowance, if you will, to get a better understanding of what that one particular thought was, no matter what gospel it might have been in. The beauty of not only the gospels, but the rest of the scriptures as well, is that although God is the author of, of His inerrant, holy writings, the books in the Bible are written with personality. Now, I don't mean God does not have a personality. Do not get me wrong here. Far from it, okay? What I mean is, He allowed the individual inspired writers to write the books with their own personal flair, let's say. So you get kind of differing viewpoints of of the same story many times. It it would be like Brett, Fred, and I looking at something on the wall. We might come up with three different definitions of what that particular thing is. With all of us in in the room together, we look at that table, we may describe it differently. Well, it's the same thing with the Gospels, okay? They're looked at from different perspectives. So it's not so much that that God does not have a a personality. He does, okay? It's just that man was allowed some creativity in the penmanship of his particular writing. Not in content so much as as it just allowed the person's individual... um, freedom to that end. But let's look at it from a, from a newspaper standpoint. God is still the editor-in-chief, okay? Nothing is going to be in print that was not ordained by Him. So today we're going to look at the first beatitude. This is the first blessed are statements, if you will. And remember also that what separates these beatitudes for us as Christians as opposed to the rest of the world is that we are attempting to live these thoughts In the name of Jesus Christ, our model for living as his followers, as it were. We're not following these ideas to to simply live a good life and and that be it, okay? We're, We're living these concepts that Jesus gave us because he is the one who embodied every single one of them. 
There's nothing that he says that blessed are that he was not able to do and that he did. And although we will never be able to do it, we're told in the Old Testament especially, be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as I am perfect as, as God is saying here. Well, what's the chances of us doing that? Zero, okay? No one except Jesus Christ has ever lived that kind of life on this earth. And yet we are to strive to live that way. And what Jesus is doing here is He's giving us a foundation. He's given us a basis to be able to, to grow in our spirit. We're able to grow because we can use these, these Beatitudes as the examples that Jesus lived Himself while He was here. It, it, it's not for perfection that we're trying to live so much as it is to try to live a life separate and apart from the rest of the world. To be examples to the rest of the world. To be a beacon of light in a dark world. We are to be a light. And what is Jesus called in John 1, 4 in the first half of verse 5? He's called a light. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in darkness. There's our example right there to live by as we see in Matthew 5, 16. We are told to let our light shine before men. Before we start though, we want to look at verses 5, or Matthew 5, 1 and 2. Before Jesus begins to give, the, again, what we know as the Beatitudes. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and the disciples came to him and he began to teach them. In other words, Jesus began to explain the words that he was about to tell the crowd to his closest disciples first. Interesting thought, is it not? He also knew that some would need further explanation. He knew his disciples would not be able to understand everything that he was about to say. But he knew as well, some might be able to pick up a little bit, some might not. But he was also looking at them as a smaller sample of, of this larger crowd, this multitude that he was going to be telling these words to. And he knew that some of them might be able to understand as well. But he needed his disciples to be as clear as possible in this. We see in Mark 4, he does the same thing. He, he takes his disciples off and he tries to explain to them what he is saying before everyone else hears those words. He wants to make good and sure that they comprehend what he is trying to teach for a number of possible reasons here. Now, understand, Acts 2, we know that the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and then everything becomes clear to them. So we know that not everything was going to be perfectly clear this first time around. But he wants them to be as equipped as they possibly can be. Same thing that we're trying to do here. We are trying to equip you all in the same way that Jesus was trying to equip his disciples. But I want to ask you this. If you can, if, how can you live the words of Jesus if you don't understand or at least have some semblance of understanding of what message is being try, trying to be conveyed? Second, how could you explain the words of Jesus if they hadn't been explained to you? If a young Christian came to you, I don't care what age, but young in terms of, of, their, of their Christian walk, if someone came and asked you about a statement made by Christ, 
and you had no clue what it meant, what would you say? If you go back to Paul, the Apostle Paul, look in Romans 10, 14, and he asks, how can people hear if they don't have a preacher? In other words, how can people understand if they don't have someone to be able to explain it to them? The Ethiopian eunuch, the same way. Philip's walking along the chariot. You understand what you're reading? How can I unless somebody explains it to me? See, this is a common thing. The Scriptures are not easily understood by everyone. We, as the equipped people of God, have to help others who don't understand, all right? If you tried to tap dance your way through some explanation and was way off base with your answer, what kind of message is that going to send to that young Christian? Jesus had to make sure His disciples were well-versed and, and totally understood or as much as they could in all phases of the Word. We as Christians hear the Word preached. We hear it taught. And we read and we study on our own. And why? Is it to waste our time and energy? Is it so we can win Bible trivia contests if you ever happen to get into one of those? Is it so that we can look smart to our friends and our co-workers? Are you here this morning just to waste a few hours on a Sunday? If you are not here this morning to walk away with more knowledge of the Word of God than before you came in this morning, what's your purpose for being here? You ever thought about that? Now, if you don't walk away this morning with at least a point or two more than what you had before, I have not done my job. And that's on me. But we are here to learn while we are in this place so that we might be better equipped to live in a world of sin and be able to survive it. Moreover, to overcome the evil that is in the world. We've said before, each, each of us as followers of Jesus Christ in our own worlds have the opportunity to be ministers to others for the cause of Christ. If you are not spiritually armed with the Word, what good are you going to be? You've got to be prepared to go out and live in the world, holding your own against sin and advancing the Word of God, looking to make converts out of the lost with, of course, help from the Holy Spirit, because we can't do that on our own. So Jesus begins then to talk to His disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's their first lesson here. So let me ask you this. How can you become poor in spirit? You ever thought about that? Is there some school that can teach you that? I didn't learn it in seminary, I can tell you. You, you, you can be poor in material things. You, you can be a poor as a student. You can make poor choices. Arguably, being poor in spirit is an attitude that you can come to, perhaps. Isaiah 61.1 talks about preaching the good news to the poor. It isn't the penniless, though arguably some might disagree with that, but the oppressed are the ones who trusted in God for deliverance. They are the poor in spirit. For them, it would have had to have been deliverance from their enemies. For us today, it's deliverance from our mortal enemy, and that is Satan, and that is sin. Being poor in spirit is to understand and come to grips with the fact that we don't have a single resource within ourselves. We're being told 
of being of, of, of a void of being able to do anything for ourselves, even be be truly happy within ourselves. Therefore, we have to look to God for help and to depend on Him for all things. In a farther reaching way, I believe that it's within this one verse that we can better learn how to live the other ten verses that we are going to uh, be looking at over the next several weeks in a more immediate way. I think this verse means that we have no way to save ourselves from eternal death. We have come to the understanding that there is nothing within us that allows us to be good enough to measure up to God's standards on our own. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.8, For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. That's not a gift from, uh, it's not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. We as Christians come to that saving knowledge and understanding of where we are in relation to faith and grace. We can't earn it. We cannot buy it. I think maybe one of the best examples of being poor in spirit, we see in the scriptures at least, found in Luke 18, 10 through 14. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisee talks to God about how how good he is, what good he does. Even almost goes so far as saying, God, you're lucky to have me down here. I kind of help keep things going in the right direction. And I thank you especially for not letting me be like that tax collector over there who has the audacity to be worshiping in the same space that I am at this moment. All the tax collector could do was on his own behalf to God in his prayer is say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A simple prayer, not ornate, very simple, less than 10 words. I truly think that this man had the right idea of being poor in spirit. The Pharisee let his pride interfere with his thinking. He didn't ask for forgiveness. And you know what? He didn't get it. To be poor in spirit means death. Death to pride. Death to ego. To be poor in spirit also means to understand that not only can we not save ourselves, we can't live a Christian life on our own strength either. We can't be like children in in a way when as we grow up we can decide we don't need our parents anymore for support. We can never get to the point where we can look to God and say, okay, God, I got it under control now. Thanks for your help up to here, but I've got it now. No problems at all. And don't we all do that at some times? I mean, I do. Every time I sin, I am looking away from God and saying, I think I know a little bit better for me right now what I need than you do. I mean, that's the long and short of it, okay? We must come to a total dependence on God for all things. We said earlier that Jesus was our perfect example in how to live these Beatitudes. No one lived with the attitude of being poor in spirit better than Jesus Christ did. No one has ever lived, that has has ever lived, had the mental, physical, and spiritual capabilities to live on his own for himself more than Jesus did when he was here upon this earth. Yet he exemplified to every one of us through his life how to live without all of that. Matthew 4, remember, we see Jesus being tempted in the desert early in his ministry. 
Jesus didn't even have to use his own words to put Satan in his place here. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 in the second temptation when he says not to put the Lord your God to the test. And the third temptation, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. Now, did Jesus need to pray? Hardly. And yet, look how often we see him communing with his father. How, how often, even up to the end of his earthly life, he spoke with his father in heaven. His, his life was a display of total existence on God. He was baptized, not because he needed to be, but to exemplify to us what we needed to have done. He did, it, he did it as Matthew 3.15 said, to fulfill all righteousness. This would help him to identify as the sin bearer of all men. Therefore, it was fitting for him to be baptized, not for his own sinless existence, but for all of us. If no other example of being poor in spirit is needed, Christ died on the cross for us. He didn't have to do it. And yet he chose to become man so that he might free us from the slavery of sin, from the slavery of the fear of death, as we see in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And why did he do it? Because it was the will of his father to do it. Even to the very last night, his human side kept coming out. Take this cup from me, he begs his father, yet not as I will but as you will. Matthew 26, 39. So what is exactly does it mean being poor in spirit? What does it look like? What would we do? First, it should come from the heart and not from the mouth alone. Okay, It wouldn't be saying one way of living and doing another as we so often do. Do as I say, not as I do, is our mentality so much of the time. We would need to express total dependence on God. Our prayer lives would change fairly drastically, I would think. I know mine would. Instead of the occasional prayer, prayer would be our main focus in life. Maybe for the most of us, that might be a change that would be too hard to handle. Huh? But if you're to build a house that will withstand bad weather as well as good, will you build it with a poor foundation? Certainly not. Prayer must be our sure foundation for all things in this life. Seek your help in God, not in man. Seek your strength in God, not in yourself. To be poor in spirit would mean to give sacrificially, to give up the luxuries we have for the sake of the poor, for the, for the sake of the church. That's too much to ask, preacher. I just, I can't do that. May I remind you, what God gave up for us, the most valuable gift he had, his son Jesus. Did he have to do that? You bet he didn't have to. But he loved us so much that he gave him up to die the death of a criminal on this earth so that we might not perish but have everlasting life with him. Anything that we do in the name of Jesus on behalf of the church, on behalf of God, is far easier than anything that He ever did for us. Anything that we lose here on earth, as Paul has told us, is gain 
in the eyes of God. Instead of trying to impress others and gain admiration from those around us, we should be content to do the work that God has given each of us without fanfare, without notice, without applause. That's being poor in spirit. Finally, why be poor in spirit? Jesus tells us in the second half of this verse, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What greater reward could there be? God has offered to be our God. He's offered that for generations. You begin the first chapter of the the first verse of Genesis to the very end of the book of Revelation and you will see that common thread all the way through. I will be your God if you will be my people. What greater reward could there be than to be a child of God? He tells us that He can be our God by us being poor in spirit, by us being totally dependent on Him. Those who are the oppressed, those who trust in God for deliverance of sin, will see the day that He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more tears or crying or pain. We see this in Revelation 21.4. That will be our future. That will be our present day, being poor in spirit. That's what the reward that we will get. Now to the opposite of that, look how hell is described. It's a place where there will be endless weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hmm. Pretty big difference, isn't there? To be in the presence of God, not for a short time, but for all of eternity, it'll be worth every minute of living as Jesus himself lived, as he tells us to have the kingdom of heaven, and we need to be poor in spirit. The invitation is open to us all. But do you see more clearly why it's important that Jesus took his disciples away from the rest of the crowd and explain this to them, the necessity of knowing what these words meant. To be able to teach it, you've got to be able to understand it and attempt to live it as best as you possibly humanly can. Do not, do you see the the necessity of knowing what this means so that we can go out and effectively do our job as followers of Jesus Christ, that we can go out and tell the world what they must do to inherit eternal life. We don't have to be rich in worldly goods or have great power or authority over a great number of things, over anything for that matter. We don't have to be, we're not be able to speak eloquently before large numbers of people. We don't even need to know certain people to get in and speak to a very important group. We already know the one most important person that we'll ever need to know. Know who your Redeemer is. Know that not only the Father in heaven has the means by which to save us from our iniquities and you're on your way. Focus your mind on Christ and not on the earthly temporal deceptions of life. Fix your mind on what is real, on what is permanent, on what is truly life-changing, the love of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, who gave it all up on the cross so that we might have life eternal. Everything else is temporary. It's temporal. And it's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. 
We must become the poor in spirit that Jesus talked about. Not depending on our own goodness to save us, for it won't. It it can't. We must become the poor in spirit, not depending on our own merits and ability to live the Christian life, because we can't. But remaining dependent on God to carry us every step of our way, for He is the only way. He is the only one who can lead us to that. We must become the poor in spirit in that our every longing and desire is to belong to the kingdom of heaven, to be a part of God's heavenly family, not only for today, but for eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being called a child of God. But there are a lot of lessons we need to learn, a lot of lessons we need to understand more completely. And you've told us to be holy as you are holy. Well, that one's a little bit beyond us. And yet, Father, we're to, we're to strive to be like you each and every day. We know we can't be there. We know we'll never be holy like that upon this earth. And yet we're striving to help others see their need for you so that we all might be together in heaven one day where there will be no more crying, no more tears. There'll just be joy. Lord, help us. Help us to understand that we need to be totally dependent on you. And that's the beginning. Once we get to that point, we're on our way. So would you bless us to that end today? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I am stopping it now.